0: How often do you think about the future? How often do you think about the future? Chances are it's pretty often. For all our talk of just living in the moment, most of us live with our sights set on tomorrow. I mean, just think about when you're on vacation. From almost the moment you land at your destination, your mind is racing ahead. You can hardly enjoy yourself because of the constant thoughts, i got to be back in the office in six days. Or maybe you're near the, the end of your high school years and thinking of the good grades you need to get or the score on the SAT that you must reach in order to get into the college you really want to get into. All of us are thinking about the future in one way or another, and whether consciously or subconsciously living in light of it. But I wonder if when we think about the future, we, we think of it often in terms of how we see it, and not as God foretells it. Remember well, this morning, we'll, we'll see the future through God's lenses, as promising something far better than admission into a top college, or something far worse than the end of a dream vacation. In our passage this morning, we'll see God lay out his vision For the future of what it holds for all people, either eternal delight or eternal destruction and damnation. And he calls us to live now in light of the future with our actions today, determining what we'll experience on the future day. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Zephaniah. The book of Zephaniah. Now let me help you because maybe some of y'all don't know exactly where Zephaniah is. Alright, so if you go to the New Testament and find Matthew, just flip back. Like three, three books, right? So Malachi, and then Zechariah, and then Haggai, and then you'll land at Zephaniah. Zephaniah, what we'll be in today is we kind of wrap up a, a short series through some of the minor prophets, some of the smaller books of the prophets in the Old Testament. And it is a small book, three chapters. We're going to read the entire book together, right? right? We want to be a congregation that obeys what, what Paul told Timothy, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture. And So if you've never read Zephaniah before, you're in for a treat. You get to read Zephaniah today. You can check that off your Bible reading list, that little check mark that probably would have left unchecked for the rest of the year. Zephaniah, starting at chapter one. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord. Who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the king, the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter. A loud crash from the hills. Well, O oh inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and destruction. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blasts and battle cries against the fortified cities, and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind, so that they walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Gaza will be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O sea coast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The sea coast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I've heard the taunts of Moab. And the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, a Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted it boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in his place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herd shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exalted city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. Oh, what a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon, my, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Then all of them shall call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He he will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. As we open up this book, kind of a longer passage that we've read in one setting, we, we need to get a kind of sense of our bearings, right? Who is this book from, and, and, and where does it fall in the kind of biblical storyline and, 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 and sequence of events? And we get help from the text itself, so if you just look at verse one, it says that this book is a testimony from the prophet Zechariah, or Zephaniah, He is one who serves as a mouthpiece for God, foretelling and and foretelling the truth of God. We see that Zephaniah doesn't speak for himself, but for the Lord. The the beginning of the verse tells us that the word of the Lord came to him. And it came to him at a certain period of time. The end of verse 1 tells us Zechariah ministered in the days of Josiah, the king of Judah. Josiah reigned from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. So for context, there are three big dates you need to always have in your mind as you read through the Old Testament. You might want to write these down and kind of bookmark them into your brain. Three big dates, okay? 931 B.C., 722 B.C., and 586 B.C. In 931 B.C., the nation of Israel was split between the the ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom, Israel, and the two tribes that made up the southern kingdom, Judah. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, Israel, was taken into captivity, into exile by the Assyrians. And then in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, Judah, was taken into captivity, into exile by the Babylonians. So, Josiah's reign in Judah from 640 B.C. to 609 is after the northern kingdom Israel had been exiled for their sin, but before Judah was exiled because of their rebellion against God. If you remember, Josiah was was the last of the good kings of Judah and brought reforms to the nation. If you have time this, this evening, read through 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. Where Josiah finds the book of the law of Moses, the law of God in the temple, and he reads it and he weeps. Right? Because Judah had been so long practicing idolatrous worship, doing everything the book said don't do. And so Josiah led the nation on a kind of wide scale campaign to repent of all their sins, to, to tear down all the altars of the idols, to stop all this idol worship. It's during this time, during his reign, that Zephaniah, the prophet, prophesies. God using him alongside King Josiah to kind of tag team and call the people of Judah back to covenant faithfulness to God. And warning them that if they did not return, a day of judgment was coming. So so here's what I think is the the main idea of the book of Zephaniah. You can find it in in your sermon notes page of, of your bulletin as well. The main idea of this book. Zephaniah wants to tell us, tell Judah, a day of reckoning with God is coming. So repent before that day that you might know God's restoration and not his wrath. A day of reckoning with God is coming. So repent before that day that you might know God's restoration and not his wrath. As we walk through this book this morning, we'll hang our thoughts on five scenes. Number one, a day of doom is coming. We said that in chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. Number two, so repent today. You said that in verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Scene 3, a day of doom is coming. We said that in chapter 2, verse Four through chapter three, verse five. Scene four. So repent today. We see that in chapter three, verses six through eight. And number five. Lastly, we see a remnant will be restored. So so yes, I I know I repeated some of those points, but I think it matches what we'll see in the text. It's also a highlight of, of what you find in prophetic literature. Right, prophetic literature doesn't kind of go down the sequence of kind of in a linear fashion, like A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D. No, no, the prophets kind of repeat cycles of information to drill them into the ears of its listeners. It's kind of like these speakers on each side, right? They're doing the same thing, one from the right and one from the left. That's how the prophets kind of use these cycles of information on the right and the left to drill it down. And so we'll see these cycles this morning. First, we see a day of doom is coming. That's not hard to see in this book, is it? You you probably found it when we were reading. I mean, starting from verse 2, God speaks a word of intense judgment. Uh, Look at verses 2 and 3. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the Lord, declares the Lord. uh, From the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth declares the Lord. It's something of the uncreation. In Genesis 1, God filled the earth with beasts and birds and fish and finally man. Here, God vows to sweep everything away from the earth. Man and beast and birds and flesh. What's going on in your mind right now? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, right. This ain't going to happen. I mean, it's sunny and 90 degrees outside. And people are buzzing around in these streets. Summer is here and we have plans to enjoy it. My well, friends, in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking, partying and making plans too. Until the day of the flood that came and destroyed them all. Interestingly, the the language used here in verses one and two is almost identical to the language used when God told Noah he was bringing the flood. After seeing all the wickedness in the earth, God vowed to Noah in Genesis chapter six, verse seven, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. God's promise of judgment was followed by his fulfillment of that judgment with the flood. So, so, friends, please do not think that this vow of worldwide judgment can't be done, won't be done, because it has been done before. God does not make empty threats. Or maybe you know that God would judge folks, but think that you will be excluded. That's likely what the people of Judah thought as God's chosen people. Perhaps they could could fully endorse and even enjoy promises of judgment uh, against the wicked world out there. But as we'll see later in another judgment cycle, God starts off on a wider spectrum and, and then narrows down to show that Judah is a recipient of wrath as well. For sadly, they're just as wicked as the world. Judah, the people of God who were supposed to be committed only to God, are guilty of spiritual adultery, cheating on God by worshiping other gods, not following God's prescriptions for worship, but making up their own practices. Verse 4 there in chapter 1 says they worship Baal, the Canaanite storm god, even though he is powerless. I mean, that point was proven hundreds of years before when the prophet Elijah went up to Mount Carmel with 450 of the prophets of Baal to prove which God was mightier. The prophets of Baal, they cut themselves and they cried out and they did all kinds of rituals to to try to get Baal to respond to their pleas. But he was silent. leading Elijah to talk, maybe he's sleeping. Or on a bathroom break. Meanwhile, when Elijah called out to the true and living God of Israel, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And yet here are the people of Judah, hundreds of years later, still worshiping dead gods. God says in verse 4, a day is coming when he'll cut off every mention of Baal, every mention of every idolatrous priest who sacrifices to him, every worshiper who worships him. There are others in in Judah who may not worship all, but but they worship creation instead of the creator. Verse 5 says, they bow down on their roofs to the host of the heavens, to the stars and the moon. God had prescribed how his people should worship and who they should worship. They were to gather together and worship him alone. But we have a fine way of customizing worship, don't we? No longer did the people gather together. Each person could worship God in his own way, right at their own home, on their own rooftop. It's sort of like today when, when, when folks say, I don't need to go to church to worship God. I can worship God out in nature or on a hike or at the beach as, as I look on his creation or I can worship God alone, at home, in my bed, on my couch, through his marvelous creation. Livestream technology. But friends, that's not how God has designed it. God has designed and demanded his people to come together to worship him. He commands us in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 not to neglect meeting together. So friends, understand as a Christian... When you do not join a church, when you do not gather regularly as a church to worship God, it is not a small thing. It is one of the reasons God vows to bring judgment upon his people, Judah, here. There's still others in Judah engaged in mixed worship. At the end of verse 5 says they bowed down and, and swore to the Lord and yet also bowed down and, and, and swore to Milcom the God of the Ammonites. But God is a jealous God. He will not accept mixed worship. God plus anyone is idolatry. You cannot serve God and anyone else. Jesus made that clear. God demands wholehearted worship for he is the only God. I wonder if mixed worship is is something we're guilty guilty of as well. Maybe you'd be hesitant to admit that you worship anyone but God. I mean, worship is a a strong word. Uh, But but let's tease out what we mean by by mixed worship. Uh, What if I asked if you were guilty of mixed devotion? If you were guilty of mixed delights? If you were guilty of mixed fears? I mean, who or what are you most devoted to? spend the most time with? What takes up the most space in your heart and life and brings you the most satisfaction? Is it God alone? Or God and your iPhone? God and your Xbox? God and another person? When I was growing up, you, you, you clown one of your boys who, who got him a little girlfriend and then stopped hanging around. You see him finally, you're like, bro, we don't even see you no more. Hardly ever hear from you anymore. It's bad when you forget or forfeit friendships for another person. It's far worse when you forget God, when you forfeit your relationship with him in favor of another person, when you give more attention to them than to your creator. Is there another person in your life competing for worship with God? Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's a a child. Saints, we are called to love and to provide for and to instruct our children. But we are not called to idolize them. We are not called to constantly serve them. We are called to serve the Lord alone. Too much devotion to them might lead to a lack of devotion to him. Who are you most devoted to? Who is it that you most fear? Who is it that you most want to please and fear being rejected by? Is it God alone? Or God and your spouse? God and your friends? God and your coworkers, God and Facebook or Twitter followers? Or folks who, who might promote you and promise to put you on as long as you keep saying what they want to hear? Are we guilty of mixed fears, mixed devotion, mixed delight, mixed worship? The people of Judah were. Examine yourselves. Are you? There's another practice among Judah, or or perhaps a lack of practice that that God is against. Look at verse 6. People do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. It's more a sin of omission than one of commission. But friends, not seeking out the Lord, not longing to know him, not reading his word, not seeking him in prayer, brings the same condemnation as seeking out and worshiping false gods. For all these things, God says in verse 4, he is stretching out his hand against his own people. Wherein one time he stretched out his hand to deliver his people, now he was promising to stretch out that same powerful hand to destroy his people Judah. And when would it happen? Well, look at verse 7. On the day of the Lord. A day that is near. We, we see this day referred to over and over in this book and other prophetic books a coming day when God will unleash all his fury against all who oppose him. It is approaching soon, Zephaniah says. He gives no set date, but makes sure that we know that it's certain. And on that day, the Lord will punish not only those who engage in false or idolatrous worship, who don't keep the first table of the law, love the Lord with all their hearts, but also those who fail to keep the second table of the law, who don't love their neighbors as themselves. And look at verse 9. God vows to punish those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud, who do harm physically or economically to other fellow image bearers. On the day of the Lord, they too will be judged. As you read through chapter 1, we see their refrain just over and over again and again. Verse 10, on that day, weeping will come from places in Judah, from the fish gate, from these places in, in, in Judah. As, as God does what he says in verse 12, punishes people who are spiritually, spiritually apathetic, who believe in God, but just aren't really that concerned in him. They say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill wrong he's just there kind of inactive but they will be in for a shock their goods will be plundered their houses laid waste they will build houses but not live in them they will plant vineyards but not drink wine from them it's the fulfillment of the curses that God specifically outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that if the people of Israel broke God's covenant he would send all kinds of curses like these upon them The day is coming, Zephaniah promises, when God will be faithful to his word. It's the great day of the Lord, he says in verse 14, and it's approaching rapidly. Verse 15 says it will be a day of wrath, of distress, of anguish, of ruin, of devastation, of darkness and gloom. God wants the people of Judah to know, wants us to know how horrible of a day this will be. And he wants us to know why it will come. Look towards the end of verse 17. Why will all this destruction come? Verse 17, because they have sinned against the Lord. Friends, sin always brings a penalty. Sin always leads to judgment. And notice, sin is always personal. All sin brings a heavy penalty because all sin is against the Lord. So, so when you're unloving to your spouse, yes, they might have ticked you off, and, and yes, you might be sinning against him or her, but ultimately, know that when you're harsh, when, you, when, when you're unloving, right, you are sinning against the Lord. The kids, when you disrespect your parents, Yes, you are sinning against them, but ultimately your sin is directly aimed at God. You spit in his face. You slap him away. You fail to reflect his holy image. And God is so open, so honest, so forthright as to tell us here what he will do to those who rebel against him. Pour out his wrath. And verse 18 says, Nothing will be able to deliver people on the day when he does so. Neither silver nor gold, money nor wealth can buy us amnesty from God's wrath. Nor what silver or gold can be fashioned into by human hands. Idols, none of them can save you from God. Only God can save you from God's wrath on God's day of judgment and that day is coming. So repent today. Point number two, so repent today. You know, the fact that that God gives us warnings about future judgment is to win us over to his side before it comes. You see that in the beginning of, of of the beginning verses of chapter two. God calls out to to Judah in verse 1 of chapter 2, Gather together, shameless nation, before the decree of destruction comes, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. God does not sucker punch us. He tells us what's going to happen before it happens. And he holds back his hand, giving us time to turn back to him before he hits us. He is a God who is slow to anger. But his anger is simmering, is building up, and you don't want it to let loose on you. And he does not want to let it loose on you. You know, sometimes it's presented as if God is glad to to punish people. That's what brings him delight. But the Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. Judgment is his strange work as a just God, he must judge and, and he will judge, but he is slow to do so. His slowness a means to bring you to repentance, to give you time to turn to him to escape his wrath. Notice what he commands of Judah, of us in, in verse 3. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Pursue God and his ways with the results That perhaps you may be hidden, protected, passed over on the day of the anger of the Lord. The the prideful thing to do in the face of God's threats of judgment is to dismiss them or to deny them. To keep living your own way as if nothing will happen. The humble thing to do, the wise thing to do is to seek him. But seeking the Lord is a strange command, isn't it? I mean, especially for folks who are guilty. Judah is guilty as charged of the idolatrous and unjust practices that God has laid out. And when you're guilty of something, you usually try to hide or run away from the person who knows you're guilty. That's why people go into hiding when they commit a crime instead of turning themselves into the police. Kids, that's why you delay coming home when you get a call home or when you get a bad report card. But here, the same Lord who knows all the people's sins and condemns them for it, also calls them to come to him. Seek the Lord. Why? Because this God is not only a just judge, he is also a merciful and compassionate and gracious and forgiving Savior. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon the worst thing you can do when you know you're you're a sinner when you know you've sinned when you know you deserve judgment the worst thing you can do is turn away from God that's what's gotten us in this mess in the first place turning away from him the best thing you can do is turn towards him To confess, Lord, I know I am a sinner. I know that I am guilty. I know I deserve death and hell. But I know you will say that if you turn to me, if you confess your sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive all our sins and all our iniquities. Friends, have you done that? Have you done that? Maybe you're here this morning and you know how many are your sins that you've committed in your life in this past week. And maybe everything in you was saying, you got to run away from the thoughts of that. you got to run away from the wrath that comes from that. And God has said, no, 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 no. You need to run away from your sin and run to him. And today is the day to do that. Don't look inside yourself to find forgiveness. You are far less forgiving than God is. Don't look to other people as sources of, of comfort or relief. Don't seek escape in drugs or alcohol or pornography or video games to try to numb the reality. No, seek the Lord. Go to him right now, even silently, even there in your seat. You can call on the Lord. Confess, Lord, I know I am a sinner. I know I deserve judgment. But I believe your word here, calling me to seek you, trusting that you will pardon me if I do. Verse your sin and ask God to to rescue you, to hide you from his wrath. He will. I mean, the verse 3 here in chapter 2 says that perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. I think just speaks against just flippantly or casually calling out to God for salvation. Just presuming upon it. But for those who humbly and contritely seek him out. As we just sang earlier, a humble and a contrite heart, you will not turn away. God will deliver. God will pour out judgment on sinners, but you and I can be hidden from it, protected from it, just as the Lord protected Israel in Egypt when he poured out his judgment on the Egyptians so he can pass through with judgment again and hide you from his wrath because he hides you in his son, Jesus Christ, whom he did not hide but put forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice for us all. Jesus took the wrath of God as our substitute. He died in our place and rose from the grave three days later, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient payment for all the sins of all those who would ever turn from their sins and turn to him in faith and repentance. So friends, seek the Lord, Jesus Christ, today. Repent of your sins and trust in him to be saved from the wrath Burning anger of God. If you want to talk more about what that looks like for you in your life, talk to me, talk to someone around you after service. Don't leave here still seeking sin and heading towards the doom that God promises. Seek the Lord and find the salvation that he promises. You need it because a day of doom is coming. That's point number three. A day of doom is coming. Yes, it's repeated because Zephaniah repeats this theme of coming judgment on the day of the Lord. And again, he starts broadly and then narrows it down to his own people, Judah. In in, in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2, God talks about the destruction to come upon the Philistines. The four cities listed there in verse 4, Gaza and Ashkelon, Ashdod and Ekron. Our fourth Philistine city is located to the west of Judah, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. The Philistines were constant enemies of God's people. Perhaps the most famous Philistine you know is the giant Goliath. Well, even after he was beheaded, the Philistines continued to oppose God's people. And God here vows that their land will be left desolate and their people destroyed. I drop down to verse 5, the, the, the Sherathites there is, is another word for the Philistines. And God says he will destroy them until there is no inhabitant left. Not only will he destroy them, but he will one day give their land to his own people. Verse 7 says, to the remnant of the house of Judah, whom he will restore. We'll read more about that restoration in chapter 3. In verses 8 through 11, God pronounces coming judgment upon the people to the east of Judah. The Moabites and the Ammonites, they were distant relatives of the people of Israel, descended from Lot through his incestuous relationship with his daughters. And each were constant enemies to Israel. God says in verse 9 that they will become like Sodom and Gomorrah, utterly destroyed. So sure is their defeat that God makes a vow. As I live, I will do this. Uh, Just as certain as it is that God, who is eternal, always lives, so you can be sure that he will keep this promise to destroy the Moabites and the Ammonites. And notice specifically the reason for their destruction in verse 10. Their pride. Because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. Friends, pride kills Which means it's incredibly suicidal for a society like ours to boast in gay pride month. To flaunt an unbiblical sexual ethic in God's face and taunt God's people for opposing it. The end will be the same as it always has been for those who oppose God and his people. Destruction. Verse 11 says, the Lord will be awesome against them. In verse 12, yet another people, an enemy of God's, and of God's people, is put on notice. A day is coming when the Cushites, or Ethiopians, to the south of Judah, in Africa, they will be slain by sword. And not just any sword, God lets it be known that their demise will come by his hands, by my sword. And then in verses 13 to 15, God vows that a day is coming when he will judge those to the north of Judah, the Assyrians. In verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh, its capital city, a desolation. The great Assyrian empire that had taken the northern kingdom Israel into captivity and plundered their land will themselves be devastated and plundered. Verse 15, "The, the proud city. The exultant city that lived securely, that boasted, "I am, and there is no other," a claim that only God can rightly make. <laughs> they will be humbled, become as nothing but a place for wild beasts. All the people destroyed. And now, if you're the people of Judah. You're reading all these pronouncements of judgment and clapping your hands. Amen. Yes, let's go. Yeah. Destroy all your enemies, God. Destroy all our enemies to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. Get rid of them all. But there's one more enemy that God needs to judge. Judah itself. His very own people. Look at chapter three, verse one where God speaks against Judah. He says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. And again, he outlines Judah's rebellions. She listens to no correction. She does not trust in or draw near to the Lord. Instead, what fills the land is injustice and oppression. That's not a new buzzword. That's a biblical word. There is oppression among the people of God in Judah. And it seems to be systemic. Notice Judah, or specifically here, Jerusalem, the capital city, is called the oppressing city. The whole society is plagued by oppressing people with oppressing people. And it's entrenched in the strong and the powerful preying on the weak. I mean, look at verses 3 and 4. The people in authority, the people who, who should be leading the people in righteousness, are instead feeding on the people, feasting on the vulnerable. The officials are like roaring lions. They prey on people. The judges Who's supposed to be keeping the law, right? We're setting the law. The judges, right, even though they live under the the law of Moses, right, have made up their own laws. They are like evening wolves. They ravage the people. The prophets are, are fickle and treacherous. And the priests, who should present the people as holy, profane what is holy. God's people, who were supposed to be a light to the nations, have become like the nations, and deserve the same judgment, and are promised the same judgment as the nations. Woe to them, God says. But notice that though Judah has sinned horribly against God, that their sins are in no way a reflection of him. Though they are unrighteous unrighteous and unjust, verse 5 says, But the Lord within her is righteous, and he does no injustice. God always does what is good and just. He always does what is good and right for him as a holy God. And what is good and right for him as a holy God is to judge all unrighteousness, all wickedness, and all unholiness of men wherever he finds it. In Moab, and in Cush, and in Assyria, and in Judah, in the world out there, and in the church. That's the most appropriate correlation for us today. The best correlation from Israel or Judah to now is not to America, but to the people of God now, the church. Please do not ever conflate Israel with America. America is not God's chosen people. No, America is like all these other pagan nations that God promises to destroy in this passage for their rebellion. And God promises to judge his own people, Judah, if they persist in unrepentant sin. So saints, as the church, we need to take these promises of God's judgment seriously. Don't think that everybody else will be judged for their sins, but because you trust in God, because you put your faith in Christ, because you walked the hour, because you've been baptized, because you've been coming to church for so many years that you'll be okay, even though you keep sinning against the Lord. No, oh, God will judge you and me if we act as if we don't know him. That judgment is certain. You see, because though the day of the Lord promised to these nations came at various points through their being conquered, though the day of the Lord promised to Judah when they would be judged came when they were exiled to Babylon, it was only a partial fulfillment of the promise. That's why when you open the New Testament, you read the New Testament writers still speaking of a future coming Day of the Lord. You read it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. And they tie this coming day of the Lord to Jesus Christ's return. When he will come back, not to save, but to judge all his enemies. Those who openly oppose him and those who profess to know him but whose actions and affections speak otherwise. Jesus will return as judge to repay each person for their works. And he is coming soon. Just as Zephaniah prophesied that the day of the Lord was near, so the New Testament says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You won't be able to mark it down. You won't be able to, to, to try to figure out when it's going to happen. It's going to come really soon, really, really quick. And the question is, will you really be prepared for it? It will be a day of judgment, of utter dread for all those who are in sin, for all God's enemies. So, repent today. That's thing number four, repent Today, once again, repentance should be the response to, to news of God's coming judgment. Repentance should be the response to the knowledge of God's partially executed judgment. That's what God expects for his people to repent of their sins when they see God's judgment against sins. Look at chapter three, verse six. The Lord says, I have cut off nations Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. God had already begun executing his judgments against the nations around Judah. I mean, he'd done so throughout Israel's history. He'd crushed the nations around them for their idolatry and wickedness and was still doing so. And his purpose was not just to crush them, but to correct his own people, to show them what happens when people sin, and to call them to repentance. He says in verse 7, I say it, surely you will fear me. Surely you will accept correction. I mean, once you've seen what I do to others, then your dwelling place would not be cut off like, like theirs will be. Sadly, Judah did not respond in repentance. Look at the end of verse 7. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, God says in verse 8, wait for me. Wait for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. When he will gather up the nations, including Judah, to pour out his indignation. Oh, friends, look look around you. Look at all that is happening in the world. When you see wars, when you see famines, there might be political reasons behind them. But more, there's a God executing judgments. When you see people celebrating promiscuity, celebrating homosexuality, celebrating abortion, see God's judgments being executed. T.J. read for us earlier in Romans chapter 1 that one of the ways that God judges us is by giving us over to sinful desires. When you go to funerals, when you see people die, know that that's God's judgment being executed. The penalty of sin is death. When we see all these things, our natural desire is to close our eyes to ask God to shield us away from these things, take us away from seeing all these things. But friends, understand part of God's purpose in it. God is showing you his judgment in this life to keep you from his judgment in the next life. God is committed to using all means to call his people to repentance. He's showing you all that he's doing, judging and judging and judging and saying, don't you face the same fate. And if God is committed to such a work, so must we be as God's people. I mean, some of us are experts at calling out people's wretchedness. But we need to be even more committed to calling people to repentance. So don't just point out people's sin. Point them to God's remedy for sin, redemption in Jesus Christ. Let them see God's judgments against sin. Let them feel it. Let them know it. But show them that God judged Christ in the place of all who turn from sin and trust in him. Dear friends, if you are here this morning, and you're not a Christian or not sure that you are. Today, you must turn to him. Not another day, but today. Jesus took God's wrath so you would not have to repent today so that you might not face wrath on the day when the Lord Jesus returns, but rather that you might be restored. That leads to the fifth and final scene here, a remnant restored. A remnant restored. Zephaniah again points to a future day, but this time with hope with joy in in chapter 3 verse 9 God says at that time on that day there will be a change in people not just in Judah in, in Jews but in all the peoples in all the nations Jew and Gentile their speech would change as their hearts were changed And all of them would call upon the name of the Lord. But how would all kinds of people call upon the name of the Lord on this last day? If it was going to be a day of judgments. Well, as we said earlier, this day of the Lord that we've seen over and over in this book was was partially fulfilled in, in judgments upon the nations. And then partially fulfilled upon Judah in exile. And though this future day of the Lord finally pointed to to the day when the Lord Jesus returns, it was preceded by the day that the Lord Jesus first came. He came, Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 tells us, to save his people from their sins. And his people would include all peoples, not just Jews, but all the peoples of the earth. We we know this because by the end of Matthew, Jesus commissions his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, of all peoples. Teach them about me and what I have done to save them. Teach them that I died on the cross for them. Teach them that that I rose from the grave for them. Teach them that I sent it into heaven for them. Teach them that I sent down the Spirit to fill them and give them new hearts and new lips to call upon my name. And and so the Apostle Paul, a Jew, a Jew of the Jews, whose heart was changed by God so that he called on the name of the Lord Jesus, That Jewish man could write to Romans, to non-Jews, and confidently say in Romans chapter 10 verse 13 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus came and suffered so that all kinds of people could call upon his name. That's why racism is so foolish, as if one ethnic group of people is more superior or inferior than another. Jesus came for all kinds of folks. That's why demeaning poor folks, right, or looking up at rich folks is so stupid because Jesus Christ came to to, to show that all people are sinners and all people need salvation in him. He died so that all who would turn from sins would have faith, would, would have salvation in him. Zephaniah prophesies that when Jesus returns on that great day, all kinds of people will still be calling on the name of the Lord, worshiping King Jesus. Can you sense it? Can you see it? The Lord wants us to get a picture of what heaven will be like. A picture of the future day. This coming day of the Lord, when when Jesus returns, it will be a day of judgment for God's enemies, but endless blessing for God's people. For the remnant who've trusted in the Lord. And notice in verses 11 and 12, God promises to, to remove the proud and the haughty. But the people humble and lowly, Will remain those who seek refuge in the Lord. It is pointing towards a future day in the new Jerusalem, the, the heavenly city. There will be no more enemies and no more evil, no injustice, no lies, but real peace resting with the Lord. What should our response be as we wait for that day when we will be restored? Joy. Verse 14, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, rejoice with all your heart. Why? Verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. It's not that we don't deserve the same judgments as everyone else. I mean, up in verse 11 of chapter 3, God acknowledged that we have rebelled against him. He knows we are sinners. But God has taken away his judgments and placed them on another, his son, for those who repent and seek refuge in him. Imagine Judah in, say, 622 B.C., hearing this prophecy from Zephaniah. King Josiah is bringing reforms. The Lord is seemingly removing his judgments as they return to the covenant. But it will be short-lived. The reforms was not fully implemented, and so then imagine the people of Judah reading this prophecy in 522 B.C. They'd felt the force of disobeying God, and were now in exile in Babylon. The harsh judgments from God against their sin had forced them from their land into the cruel capture of their enemies. But as they read this book, Here was God saying that a future day was coming when if they trusted in the Lord, their enemies would be crushed and all their judgments removed. There would be joy that filled them even in the midst of current hardships. Think of us today in 2022, reading this prophecy. With all the judgments of God around us, all the enemies surrounding us But knowing that our greatest enemy, sin, has been defeated. That our greatest judgment, the wrath of God, has been cleared away by King Jesus who crushed sin and drank God's wrath so that we might be restored. All our judgments might be removed. And not only that, I mean, not only the removal of our sin, the removal of God's judgment. Look at verse 15. That's not, on, that's not the best news. The best news is that the king will be with us in our midst, verse 15 says. The Lord once again will return to dwell with his people. The garden scene will be recaptured, right? There will be a better Eden and no one will be kicked out this time. God will be pleased to dwell with us. And what joy should fill our hearts as we wait for that day. Amen. What joy fills God's heart as he looks forward to that day. Verse 17, the Lord will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God is happy to have us as his children, to have us in his presence. Though our sins have separated us from God, he has moved close to us in Christ. He has removed our transgressions far away from us in Jesus. He has washed them in the blood of his son and he's bringing us towards him in faith and repentance so that one day we will live with him forever. What a day. What a day coming for those who trust in the Lord. A day when the true people of God will be restored. But when those who reject God we judged so what will the future day of the lord hold for you joy or judgments friends turn from your sins and trust in jesus keep trusting in him through trials and through temptations so that when he returns we will not be frightened or ashamed but rejoicing to see him and him rejoicing to see us that's prayer lord we thank you for your word that lifts our eyes off our present predicaments and shows us what is the glorious good news of trusting in christ but lord for the good news we need to see the horrible judgments that our sins deserve and so lord we pray that you would deepen uh, seriousness within us lord uh, to examine ourselves and to see where we will be, not uh, this afternoon or tomorrow, but where we will be 10,000 years from now. Mm-hmm. Help us to understand that all of us will live eternally mm-hmm. in one place or another, Amen. in heaven or hell. Give us Christ, Amen. that we might live with him. Uh, Make us joyful in him, knowing that he rejoices to have us as his own. Oh, we thank you for Christ. His sacrifice, He has paid everything necessary for us to be with Him for eternity. Help us to submit our lives to Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.